Hey, welcome to the Sanctuary Church podcast. Sanctuary Church is a family following the path of Jesus together in Providence, Rhode Island. If you'd like to learn more about our community, you can visit our website at sanctuaryri.org or check us out on social media. Thanks for stopping by, and we hope you are encouraged by today's teaching. You are taking some time in an incredibly wonderful, though small, letter of the New Testament, Paul's letter to the Philippians. And um, we're calling this series The Art of Joy. Before we dive into one of the sections of Philippians chapter 2, I'd like to make a couple comments about the very act of doing a series on joy. I'm going to call this the audacity of joy. Wendell Berry, a wonderful agriculturalist, poet, essayist, wrote wrote a, a segment called the Mad Farmer Manifesto. A lot of pithy sayings, and one of his favorite sayings for me is, be joyful, though you have considered all the facts. I've shared that with with many a patient (laughs) at the hospital. We all are going through all kinds of things that makes something like the art of joy sound a little audacious, a little bit bold. Now, the very form of the book of Philippians is audacious in this sense. It takes 14 minutes to read through the entire book of Philippians. So if you're, if you're new and, and you're coming again this next week, these next few weeks, read it through at least once every week. Ruminate on it. Let that become a part of your psyche. Uh, as a matter of fact, chapter four, which is coming in a couple of weeks, I would assume, uh, and actually the whole book of Philippians has been called the mental health chapter of the Bible, (laughs) okay? Not that we need that at all. The mental health chapter of the Bible, okay? So 14 times in this short book, in the original language, it's translated joy or rejoicing or rejoice with or gladness. It's all that same root word, joy. Now, the audacity or the boldness of that comes from a few facts. The biggest one, of course, which probably was mentioned here last week, is that Paul's writing this from where? Prison, okay? His whole plan for ministry has suddenly had a God's interruption, as we call it. He's sitting in prison, and he is more than making the best of it, including writing a letter that becomes part of sacred scripture, probably chained to a few guards whom he is sharing the good news of Jesus with. But nevertheless, the people that he's writing to are also going through stuff. There's opposition, there's some conflicts, there's some real uh, anxieties that are happening there as in every age of anxiety, including our own. So let me read the first part of Philippians chapter two. We'll start with one through 11, and then we're going to look at a few practices that help us advance in the art of joy. Okay, so that's where we're going. Philippians 2, 1 to 11. Hear the word of the Lord. If there is any encouragement in Christ, any solace in love, any participation in the Spirit, any compassion and mercy, complete my joy 
by being of the same mind, with the same love, united in heart, thinking one thing. Do nothing out of selfishness or out of vain glory. Rather, humbly regard others as more important than yourselves. Each looking out, not for his own interest, but also everyone for those of others. Have among yourselves the same attitude, and this is central, the same attitude that is also yours in Christ Jesus. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God something to be grasped or exploited. Rather, he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, coming in human likeness, and found, in human, found human in appearance, he humbled himself, becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Because of this, God highly exalted him, greatly exalted him, bestowed on him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bend of those in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God, the Father, amen. The first practice that would help us advance the art of joy, I'm calling this. We need to feed the poetic imagination. What does that mean? <laughs> Go back to the passage you just read in your mind for a minute. In many of your modern translations, when it comes to that word about Christ, have this mind in yourselves that was also in Christ Jesus, is put in verse, as in like poet, poetic verse. There's a reason for that. It's pretty well understood that this, this work, this word of Jesus as being the one who God has brought to us in the incarnation, who has not only gone from heaven to earth, but from being, being fully human, as well as fully God, who then also takes on the form of a servant and then actually is brought to the place of crucifixion. In his obedient service, he empties himself out. And this is put in poetic verse, okay? So Paul doesn't just say, be selfless, lift up others more important than yourselves. He, he moves them towards that hymn, that sense of, of a, almost a creedal statement of who Jesus is. Be reminded, he says, of the glories and the wonder of this Jesus before whom every knee will bend, every tongue confess. Let that energize you as you think about what it means to be a community of followers of Jesus. Now, why do I use the word poetic? So much of the Bible is poetry. I'm seeing it even more than what is obvious. Many of you have read some of the Psalms, right? 150 Psalms. Fully a third of those Psalms are lament, meaning mourning, words that, that speak of pain, of anxieties, etc., of sometimes anger. Almost all of them use words, and I think there's 50 times the specific word joy or rejoice is used in the Psalms alone. It's constantly calling us to rejoice. And even in the middle of the psalmist pouring out his heart with his deepest, darkest doubts and concerns and 
feeling lost as if God has somehow gone absent, it often resolves to a place where he's even using the word, I rejoice. Joy is so much bigger than just our happening circumstances, isn't it? Joy is not just happiness. Here's an example. Psalm 16 begins, Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. And the psalm ends with this glorious word, which also was used prophetically of Jesus and is repeated in the New Testament. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Therefore, listen to this, my heart is glad. My whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you did not abandon my soul to Sheol, the place of the dead, or let your Holy One seek corruption. You make known to me the path of life. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Now, if you've been around sanctuary at all, you know that when, it, when Jesus talks about the kingdom of God, it's not a far off ethereal reality. It's something that has already happened right here, right now. The kingdom has landed. The new creation has begun when Jesus rose from the dead. But the very fact that we have a Christian hope of being with God with pleasures forevermore on a new creation should constantly be a source of perspective and even, yes, joy in the midst of whatever affliction we're going through. The bold audacity that we talked about a moment ago has appeared throughout history. When World War II was winding down, they began to discover the extermination camps, like Auschwitz. You've all heard of Auschwitz? It, was, it became almost symbolic of all of the camps because it was, if you can do any measurement, it was the worst. The inhumanity was unimaginable. The horror was there as millions and millions of people were tortured to death, the target being primarily Jews, six million Jews exterminated, six million others of other marginalized groups that the Nazis decide were not, weren't worth living. One of the main statements that came out of sorting through the Holocaust was one German writer who said this, after Auschwitz, it is barbaric to write poetry. What's he getting at? This is so unimaginably horrific that we, how, how dare we even have enjoyment? How dare we write poetry, write music, sing songs, paint paintings? How dare we? And yet, just recently picked up a little volume called Holocaust Poetry. We can't stop writing poetry. They're still building comedy routines in Odessa, Ukraine. <laughs> There's a whole book of poetry that's already come out of the war. Not, not happy, fluffy poetry. Sometimes it's poetry of witness. 
witnessing to what actually happened. Sometimes it's a poetry of protest, calling for the justice that is needed, etc. All around the world since 1945, poets and musicians and artists have taken up their pens. You know, there's a psalm, it's very interesting, it's similar to a Psalm 137. By the waters of Babylon, the psalmist cries, there we sat down and wept. Babylon, what's that? They were in exile. They had been taken from Jerusalem and the country again was in exile under an oppressive government for 70 years. We wept when we remembered Zion, Jerusalem. On the willows, the trees there, we, we hung our lyres, our harps. For there our captors required of us songs and our tormentors wanted us to be happy saying, sing one of the songs of Zion. How can we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? Do you know that the SS leaders in the concentration camps of Nazi Germany would preserve the lives of the Jewish musicians so that they could play Beethoven and have concerts for them? They couldn't even do without Beethoven as they exterminated people. And yet, as we said, throughout history, people have taken down their harps. They have picked up their pens. They've lifted up their brushes and they've created and they've made and they've sung and they've expressed the passion of what they're going through. W.H. Auden, famous English and American poet, in giving tribute to uh, another famous poet, Yeats, said this at the end of one of his poems. Follow, poet, follow right to the bottom of the night. With your unconstraining voice, still persuade us to rejoice. With the farming of a verse, make a vineyard, make a vineyard of the curse. Did you get that? With the farming of a verse, what you're writing, make a vineyard of the curse of evil. Sing of human unsuccess in a rapture of distress. In the deserts of the heart, let the healing fountain start. In the prison of his days, teach the free man to praise. Let me expand this a little bit in case you're, you're uh, recoiling from the, the concept of poetry, as some of you may do. Expand this a little bit. For some of us, it's, it's feeding our creative side. It's feeding the sense of making. It may be a song. It may be a drafting. drafting it may be crafting something. You know, people complain about Instagram and, and social media. I've often thought how that made my children more creative. And they're still making wonderfully adorable, cute Instagram videos of our grandchildren and sending them to their grandparents, which is the ultimate gift, right? It may be taking time. This may mean taking time. If you're, let's say you're a student, a nursing student studying, you know, working your way through an anatomy class, the dreaded anatomy class. That can actually become an incredible sense of the wonder of the human body. And when you get to that place where you're actually helping to heal those broken bodies, it becomes another place actually worship and to give thanks and to realize that you are doing amazing work. I had a student in my philosophy class 
who was a dual major, double major. He was a major in philosophy and had a major in math. Now, in my shallow mind, I thought, that's a strange combination, until I met with him. He asked to meet with me. He was going through a crisis of his own damaged spirituality. And we're sitting, talking with him, and I brought that up. I said, tell me about that dual interest and passion you have. And he says, oh, it's so logical. It makes perfect sense. You can't, you can't study the intricacies in the form of a mathematical equation without being in awe and being drawn to a creator. <laughs> that great? And, I mean, Einstein was not a person that you might consider a, a, a practicing religious believer, and yet he would say boldly to the scientists who were adoring him, don't even think about being a scientist without having a sense of wonder, okay? So, let's move along. <laughs> There's a second practice I want to commend to you. I'm calling this uh, the need to cultivate stubborn gladness, okay? Stubborn gladness. I heard that phrase, and it's always stuck with me. I've been thinking about it and writing more about it, and uh, I'll tell you where it came from. But first of all, let's look at where it came from in terms of Jesus and Paul. On the night before Jesus' crucifixion, Jesus is speaking to his disciples, and he says this, abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's word and abide in his love. Listen to this. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Part of Jesus' primary pronouncement of his mission would be that we would experience his joy. Now, what happens the next day after he says these to his disciples? Crucifixion. Age 33. And Jesus... I commend to you, is the man of joy. In the book of Hebrews, in Hebrews 12, it says, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. Jesus has been called the man of sorrows, but he's also the man of joy. By the way, how do I know Jesus was the most joyful person who ever lived? There's one, ver there's one reason, and it's tucked into Psalm 44. You have loved, speaking prophetically of Christ, you have loved righteousness and you have hated lawlessness. Therefore, the Lord, your Lord, has anointed you with the oil of joy beyond your companions. Why was Jesus the man of joy? Because he never sinned. Sin is not just bad, it's a waste of time, as Scott Cairns, the poet, said. <laughs> I'm, I'm reminded of that a lot. It's like so much of what we do, straying from God or going off on our own thing, is really a waste of time, not only in terms of time, but in terms of what really leads to flourishing, right? Okay. 
Here's where the word stubborn gladness comes from. Jack Gilbert, in a, uh, in a piece called A Brief for the Defense, I urge you to look it up. Jack Gilbert, you can look it up, read the whole thing. It's not that long, but here's a segment. We must risk delight. We can do without pleasure, but not delight, not enjoyment. You ever notice how joy is in the middle of enjoyment, real enjoyment? We must have, here it is, the stubbornness to accept our gladness in the ruthless furnace of this world. To make injustice the only measure of our attention is to praise the devil. Is that good? Read the whole thing, though. As followers of Jesus, we need to be more content with living in the tension of pursuing joy in the midst of, a, of the furnace of this world. We can't stop pursuing, having our, not only our imagination fed, but also pursuing our own gladness, the deep richness. And I'm not talking about putting on a smiley face. We're talking about a deeper enjoyment of the things that produce joy. And that leads us, oh, by the way, um, do you know that Christianity has long been called the religion of joy as distinct from many others? I'm not sure we would know that the religion of joy when we sometimes look at our demeanor or our dialogue. So that leads to the last practice I want to offer for the advancing of the art of joy, and that has to do with the issue of serving, serving one another. Someone very early in my Christian journey said to me, you know, the way out of the dungeon of self, have you ever felt like you're in a dungeon of self? The way out of the dungeon of self is in service to others. Sounds simplistic, it's really true. And it's, you could say it in 25 scriptural ways. All right, so let's look real quickly at Philippians 2. This is the second, right after what we just read before. So then, my beloved, obedient as you have always been, not only when I am present, but all the more now that I'm absent, work out your salvation, means build on it, with fear and trembling. For God is the one who, for this good purpose, works in you. The word is energizes you. He energizes you, both to desire and to work. Do everything without grumbling or questioning, that you may be blameless and innocent, the children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you shine like lights in the world, as you hold on to the word of life, so that my boast for the day of Christ may be that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Paul loved to talk proudly about the people who had come to faith through his work. I'm so proud of you. I just, I'm just rooting for you. And he talks a lot about his running the race and his laboring hard. And so he always brings in this encouragement, keep running the race with me. And he basically then says, even if I'm poured out as a libation or a drink offering upon the sacrifice, sacrificial service of your faith, I rejoice. Now look at these two phrases. In two verses, four times the word joy is used in some form. I rejoice and share my joy with all of you. In the same way, you also should rejoice and share your joy with me. 
Now, here's a point that, that I think comes out of this. Joy is not just a personal issue. It's not just about, oh, let's all really work at being more individually joyful. Joy is also a community process. We grow in joy as we serve one another, as we rejoice with one another, as well as weep with them. It's a communal event. It's a way that we actually grow. So here's my encouragement to you. Uh, if you are part of this community of sanctuary or another church community, and I encourage you to be a part, you have a ready-made laboratory from God on practicing the art of joy. You have a ready-made laboratory to learn to rejoice together and serve the world around you together, which desperately needs a joyful people who can point beyond our affliction. My work right now in, uh, in retirement, this is the new, the new thing for retired people, is you do several part-time things that you really want to do, right? So I'm a hospital chaplain, and I teach philosophy a couple of courses at University of Rhode Island. My, uh, one of my sons pointed out that, wow, you're sort of dealing with the whole spectrum. You know, you've got, you've got uh, bleary-eyed freshmen, and, and, and you've got people who are anywhere from 50 to 90 who often are going through um, struggling with the end of life and, and facing their own mortality. I used to see that dichotomy, but I would say it's much more close together because you know, you know the one thing that brings those two groups of people together for me and also is an opportunity as a follower of Jesus? The thing that brings those two things together in a world, in a world right now, as you know, where people are less and less familiar, less and less engaged in things spiritual or at least in things religious, right? Our levels of biblical literacy are at an all-time low. Okay? Do you know what is present? What is current? Despair. Despair. If you've heard me in the past, I've probably mentioned at least a couple times a new umbrella term that's being used within healthcare called the deaths of despair. It's the epidemic catastrophes of the opioid crisis, of alcohol cirrhosis of the liver, which is taking mostly men in their 50s and 60s by droves. And the third thing is suicide, suicidality. Second or third leading cause of death in millennials and probably much higher among veterans. It used to be when I would talk about death and dying, I would, I would speak to, say, a, a, a class of uh, 20-somethings and have to remind them that even though they're young, they're really not immortal and they're not immune and they're probably dealing with denying the very idea of death. No more. That's not a problem anymore because those 20-somethings are sitting in front of me having friends who have died of overdoses. I have young parents in my former church. I did three funerals of 20-year-olds who died of drug-related issues and suicide. 
People are not just dealing with that level of, of extreme and the reality of death in their face, but they're also dealing with their own mortality in the sense of what is the meaning of life. I no longer call my ethics class ethics, which is really sexy, isn't it? Ethics. That's what's on the, you know, what they sign up for, ethics. The subtitle is, how shall we then live? And I start by reminding them of the famous dictum, the unexamined life is not worth living. And the positive corollary of that is that the reflective life is the only life that is really indeed worth living. And we're going to help us, we're gonna reflect more deeply on our lives. So all that to say, we live in an age where there is a deep, deep hunger to explore and to be rethinking and hopefully re-enchanted with the idea that there may actually be meaning in life. Christian Wyman made this very bold statement. Joy is the only inoculation against the despair to which any sane person is prone. Joy is the only antidote to the meaninglessness that wafts through our intellectual atmosphere like poison gas. So, there you have it. It's really hot, but we can be having some joy even as we hear God's word. This is my contribution, my humble contribution to the art of joy. Feed your poetic imagination. Read the Psalms. Read the poetry, not only of scripture, but of others who help you get the perspective of joy. Cultivate that stubborn gladness. Don't surrender to the gloom, however reasonable it may be. And lastly, get excited about pouring out your life for one another and for the people around you who desperately need the touch of Jesus Christ and his good news. Can I hear an amen? Amen. Let me pray for us. Father, your joy uh, is what fills our lives. Paul could say, even though outwardly I am wasting away, yet inwardly I'm being renewed day by day. Lord, renew us. We need it every day. We can't store it up. We need your continuous infusion of your joy. Give us the heart to follow you and serve you together and to encourage and build up one another as a joyful community. In Jesus' name, amen.